0: It feels great, but fixing problems is a heck of a drug, and once you find a problem and fix it, you can't actually stop.
1: Hello, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. Today, we have Jenny McClelland, whose story episode we heard last week. Jenny's back to teach us the ins and outs of lobbying for disability rights at a state legislative level, making real changes to policies that directly affect our families. This episode is an invitation to all of us to join the army of parents that have been making real differences and including our children in the process so they see that they have a voice and that they matter. These are civil rights issues in this episode jenny shares a brief history of disability advocacy and why it is up to us to make a difference in each state that we live in she also shares her awesome victory story of making in-home nursing more accessible for trach and ventilator dependent residents of california and she shares Little baby first steps we can take to make real differences and jump in on a cause that is already being fought for. All right, let's jump into disability advocacy. Jenny, welcome back to the show. We are going to awesome. talk about your special topic of disability advocacy because you have done a lot of awesome work in that area. So, I would love to start out by hearing your biggest victory story, which we chatted about earlier, your home nursing success story.
0: So I will start with the history of pediatric home nursing in America. And one of the questions that modern medicine is bad at is what happens next? And we never solve downstream social problems. We All solve the high technology problems and then we leave the downstream problems to somebody else. Babies like James didn't live 30 and 40 years ago. Uh, My mother, this is a genetic syndrome, in between my older sister and I, my mother had a baby boy that died shortly after birth. No one said that it was the syndrome because it was the 70s and It was not out of the realm of possibility for a baby to be born, not breathe, and die. The sort of pediatric ventilators that saved James simply didn't exist then. Hmm. Um, Trache babies and ventilator babies started surviving en masse in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, It just Wasn't possible for them to live sooner than that. My husband is a twin, and he was a 32 week preemie at a time in history when 32 week preemies were the margin of viability. Wow! Now, if you go to a NICU, the 32 week preemies are monstrosities compared to the (laughs) one pound 26 weekers that are there. But medicine gets better, technology gets better, and we started saving. Babies that were previously unsavable. Now we have the question where do these NICU babies go when they can't come off the vent? So Katie Beckett was not the first tracheostomy and ventilator dependent baby, but she was the first one that got a political movement behind her. Katie Beckett was born in 1978. And as a young toddler, she contracted viral encephalitis. And as a result of that, she had brain inflammation and she lost the use of her diaphragm. The diaphragm is the muscle that controls breathing. Mm. So this is the early 80s. Her difficulty breathing required her to be on a ventilator. So she got a tracheostomy placed. Her parents were regular middle class people. And... The system at that time was set up such that while she was in the hospital, she qualified to be in the hospital. She was on a ventilator. In order to go home, her parents couldn't handle 24-hour care for a ventilator-dependent young child at home, Mm -hmm. but there was no system to pay for home nursing. Children who are eligible for Medicaid And that's the program that takes care of the very poorest people in America. Children were eligible for Medicaid if they had been in the hospital for more than 30 days. But they would lose that eligibility if they exited the hospital doors and came home. Wow. And she spent a great deal of time in the hospital because there was simply no way to send her home. And around that same time, she wasn't the only one. Every children's hospital in America was having that same problem. Um, That's around the time that the subacute where my son lived was founded. Um, It was actually, it was owned by a rich guy who owned a bunch of adult subacute and nursing homes. And the hospital called him and said, hey, we have this two-year-old. Can you take her? Hmm. And the amount of staffing it takes to care for kids is greater. They're more complicated. You have to play with them. It's an entirely different animal. But he was a rich guy, and it tugged at his heartstrings. And as soon as he took the one two-year-old, every other children's hospital said, oh, hey, now that you took her, why (laughs) don't you? Boy, have we got a deal for you. So he ended up giving over two of his nursing homes to pediatrics. And because he was a rich guy, he lobbied in the California legislature for specific set-aside funding to declare, hey, these kids are different. Hmm. We need a place to put them. They don't just need medical care. They need therapy and schooling. And for many years, the kids at his facilities got an incredibly high level of care because he was a rich guy who subsidized the budget of the pediatric facilities because he just couldn't say no to these kids. Right. So, okay, so that was a side. So Katie Beckett waivers (laughs) were passed in 1982 and they are a Reagan era program. The beauty of Katie Beckett waivers was that it would allow for a framework to say, hey, this kid is complicated. If we give this kid Medicaid, he can go home, live safely with his family with access to home nursing. The flaw with Katie Beckett waivers is like all Reagan era programs, they were premised on states' rights. So instead Mm -hmm. of passing a federal law that says, hey, these kids who need trachs and vents need home nursing, let's give them Medicaid. That sounds easy, right?
1: right? Solved
0: it is a kid in Kansas really medically different than a kid in Utah or a kid in California? No, it's the same (laughs) problem.
1: Right, right.
0: Because we said that it was a state responsibility to solve it, some states did an excellent job, and some states did a terrible job. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: in California, there was a waiver We signed James up for it, and that was that. The problem is solved for kids in California. There's no waiting list. I mean, certainly there's paperwork to fill out, and anytime Mm. there's paperwork to fill out, kids fall through the cracks. Mm. The waiting list for kids like James in Florida is 17 years long.
1: Wow! And is this the medically complex waiver?
0: That's the medically complex waiver. So if a kid like. So if a kid like James, medically identical in a state like Florida, 17 years to get him on the waiver program to get him home nursing. Wow. It's a non-issue. It's absolutely offensive. So because the Katie Beckett program is administered by every state, every state has an incentive to say, you know what? We're not required to fund these kids. Let's just not. Tennessee still doesn't have a waiver program at all. Wow. They just opted not to. Wow. Um, so back in the early 80s, the hospitals wouldn't release these kids without home nursing. Now, 30 years later, hospitals in states that don't have functional waiver programs are routinely releasing ventilator-dependent infants with no home nursing coverage whatsoever, because the states have simply decided that these children's lives aren't important enough to merit home nursing. So that's the national level battle. That national level battle is, it's important to win. It's a Mm -hmm. catastrophic violation of civil rights of people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. That's beyond the scope of my ability to fix. Um, In California, where we have a functional waiver program, we still had a hard time Accessing home nursing because the rates were just so far below market that nurses didn't want to take home nursing jobs. Uh, I think our rate had not been increased since 1992. That's ridiculous. But ridiculous. So, we had, when we were trying to bring James home from the hospital, he had been cleared for discharge. He was medically okay, but we couldn't find a nurse who would work. And at the time, the nurses were being paid the reimbursement rate was something close to $31 an hour. Mm-hmm. The actual nurses were seeing $15 an hour. Oh
1: wow. That's
0: not what nurses make.
1: Right. That is
0: offensive. We're saying right. a, a nurse in the NICU taking care of a ventilator dependent baby is making between 45 and $55 an hour. Wow. But once that kid walks out the door to go home, you're gonna pay $14.50. That's not the way that the economy works.
1: Right. That's insane. No one's going to do that. No one's going to do that. Right.
0: And so the nurses that were working in home nursing, we were always able to find some staffing because we would take uh, LVNs who were going back to school to get their RN degrees and we would work around their schedule. So we were always able to cobble it together but they were working for dramatically less than market rates. We were just compromising and letting them do homework on the job. That's not a societally sound way to pay for the care of disabled children. Right. (laughs) So uh, after years and years of lobbying, um, we had Jerry Brown as a governor for many years, and he was financially awesome, but he was a Jesuit. And he also had a soft spot for the trach vent babies specifically and pediatric subacutes specifically. Wow. So we play this game where cigarettes are terrible and yet our budgets depend on cigarette taxes. So (laughs) California loves taxing ourselves to pay for services, which is great. I would like to live in a state with nice things. Yes, Mm. we should tax ourselves. I want to pay more taxes and have better things.
1: Right, Uh, right
0: we passed a doozy of a cigarette tax and that tax went entirely to healthcare spending. And one of the things that it did was it allowed us to increase the rate for pediatric home nursing care such that it is comparable to hospital and facility rates and cases are getting staffed and the nurses are making what they deserve to make. We've, Of all the years that James had been home, we could never staff an overnight nurse because working nights and weekends is terrible. And Mm -hmm. who wants to work overnights for $14 an hour in a state where the minimum wage is $12 an hour, taking care of a ventilator dependent child who would otherwise be in the ICU. Wow! So since that rate increase, we have coverage at night. We are sleeping through the night like normal people.
1: It's great. Wow. So
0: this, the idea of where you're not supposed to sleep when you have a ventilator dependent child, anytime you subcontract a bodily function to a machine, it is unreliable and can't be trusted. Mm. These kids need to be monitored um, on the Facebook groups for trach babies. Parents are constantly waking up to a dead child because they don't have access to overnight nursing. No one's watching the child and the machines failed at night. Wow. It is a huge and catastrophic risk. And we are not facing that risk anymore because extensive lobbying, extensive work of lobbying, extensive dragging James and other kids like him to the Capitol building. We got our rate increase passed and... Life is functional. Wow. In now in the COVID era, I don't know how to adapt my lobbying strategy to being in a global respiratory pandemic because we can't exactly pick up James and drag him to the state capitol these days. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, so, So much of the disability advocacy work we've been able to do is because of the power of his story. And Mm -hmm. the power of seeing this child who will explain, this is how my ventilator works. It's a machine that breathes for me. I don't know how to adapt advocacy to a world where we can't be seen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that makes so much sense though, because once you personalize it, and you're like these are human beings that could die unless we are able to up this rate. You know, like where they see I have power over this thing, and I can save this child and other children like him. Like that totally makes sense that that human interaction helps it become more more significant, and they can feel the gravity of it. Like they can, um, right? Conceptualize that.
0: There are so many valid, competing things for every tax dollar. Mm -hmm. The way to make disability rights be undeniable is to be visible. And so many disabled people are forced to institutions and they are not seen. Mm -hmm. And if Americans knew the horrors happening behind closed doors in the facilities where children and adults with disabilities are forced to live, COVID has closed off our ability to open Americans' eyes to the horror.
1: Hmm. Well, that is a predicament. (laughs) Well, okay, so here's a question. In a non-COVID world, until we get that figured out, In a non-COVID world, what is your advice for people who want to make a difference in their particular state? So say in Utah, they live here or in in Tennessee where there's no law at all.
0: So I I have some friends who are lobbying the Utah legislature, your state-level waiver covers trait kids well but doesn't cover g-tube kids very well
1: interesting Uh,
0: every kid with a g-tube should have access to the medicaid waiver Hmm. you've subcontracted a bodily function to a machine real human contact with your state legislators is important Um, you have to tell a story and you have to have a concrete ask I think one of the active areas in Utah is that adults with G-tubes are not able to go to day programs for people with intellectual disabilities because they can't staff the right level of nursing. Hmm. That's a paperwork problem. That's a paperwork problem that can be solved. And so the way to get into advocacy is to find a problem in your life, think of a solution, and make someone understand that the solution is important. Yeah. I don't like talking about the dollar value of things because it it is absolutely correct that home care is dramatically cheaper and more cost effective than institutional care. The subacute facility where James lived cost the Medicaid system in California $1,100 a day. That's more than half a million dollars a year for just room and board. Wow. James, being at home with a nurse, is still in the six figures, but closer to $100,000 a year. And that's because we have a nurse at school and a nurse overnight. Hmm. I don't like talking about the dollars and cents Mm -hmm. because it devalues the lives of disabled people. My son doesn't get to be alive because it's a bargain for you, but that is the language that legislators want to hear. So it's important to get into the nitty gritty of saying, listen, I can't work outside the home because I can't find childcare that will take my son who has a feeding tube. If I work outside the home, I can pay taxes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't like that we have to phrase things with the dollar value of the taxes we might pay taking priority over the civil rights of our children, but that is the game that we have to play.
1: Right. I mean, I'm sure you have some kind of combination of he's a human and deserves to live And doing it this way will save you money. Like a combination of the human emotional side and then the practical, you know, you can still keep your budget side. I lead
0: with the civil rights. Mm -hmm. I dive into the numbers and then I finish with the civil rights. Okay. Civil rights do not have a dollar value. Mm. I don't care if it costs the same amount to keep him safe at home. He Mm. has civil rights rights. He is a human being worthy of love and life with his family.
1: Right. Right. And so it really is a a civil rights issue that you're dealing with when you are advocating for people with disabilities because they are humans and they have a right to happiness in life, like you said.
0: And the specific right is an Olmstead right. That's a very recent Supreme Court decision that said disabled people have a right to receive care in their own homes. Mm. The nursing home lobby in America is incredibly powerful. With the COVID pandemic, where have we seen the worst infection rates and the worst outcomes? In nursing homes and congregate living settings. There are other better ways to care for disabled people that respect their civil rights and have the added bonus of not killing them. (laughs) It's a great bonus. (laughs) And it's dramatically cheaper to pay someone to come help grandma roll out the heavy garbage cans and do meal preparation than it is to force her into an institution. But we have a system that prioritizes institutionalization at the expense of disabled people's basic civil rights.
1: Wow. So... If someone is like listening to this and maybe feels like I do, what is like the very first baby step? Like, where would you, I don't even, I'm like, how would I That's even safe. talk to someone in legislature?
0: So state legislators really don't have that big of a, like, so to call your congressman, he represents hundreds of thousands of people and he's busy and you're never going to talk to him. Okay. Your state legislator represents 60,000 people. And you can talk not only to your state legislator, they will have a healthcare staffer whose entire job is helping people with very specific state level programs.
1: Hmm.
0: If you're having a problem with even like, say, for example, you're enrolled in a Medicaid program in your state and things are weird. You can't get the prescription you need. You're having problems with your authorization. Your state legislators are paying that company to keep your child out of the hospital. Anything that anyone can do is cheaper than a hospital, ambulance ride, ER trip admission. Mm-hmm state legislators are gold mines of information and skills and they will have a staffer who will explain everything to you it's hmm. it shouldn't be such a secret but it it doesn't even it doesn't matter what party you are it doesn't matter what party your representative in the state legislator is there will be a helpful person who will say oh yes you're in this county call this person they competent
1: wow that's so cool <laughs> so can we like... have a
0: secret it's called <laughs> representative <laughs> democracy and it works
1: that's amazing so if if i hopped on my computer and like google searched what would i google search what would you like type in to find like a contact so, for that
0: so whatever state you're in so just google find my representative and then your state name
1: don't okay. Bother
0: with national advocacy until you get your training wheels. State level advocacy is a training ground for figuring out how to solve problems. Um, a recent problem that I worked on the solution to is pediatric hearing aids. Hmm. Uh, as you know, kids' hearing aids are like $8,000, they are bonkers expensive, and most yes. private insurance covers the kind of hearing aids that adults need. Every state right now has somebody that's working on legislation to get hearing aids for children covered. Hmm. Because number one, it's important for children to hear, hearing aids are a problem we can solve. Number two, the downstream costs to society of children not being able to hear are humongous But number three, back to civil rights, we have hearing aids, we should pay for them.
1: Yes, yes, totally. Like, that is such a basic need.
0: (laughs) But if the cost of hearing aids is greater than the cost of your family car, that's not a reasonable (laughs) ask for working class families to do. So, and honestly, Facebook and social media are great for disability advocacy, There is someone in your state that you would have had to write them a letter back in the day. Mm -hmm. There's someone in your state that's working on that, and you can find them now. And all your legislators are on social media, and you can contact them that way.
1: So, like, are you talking, like, a private message? Or, like, what does this look like?
0: Legislators love Twitter, and I find Twitter to be exhausting. I am a middle-aged mom. I'm on Facebook. (laughs) <laughs> um, there are disability rights advocacy groups in every state. You can send them a direct message on any social media platform of your choosing, and you mm. can say, Hey, I'm interested in this issue. Who's working on that? Mm. And they will find you someone, and someone has already started working on it, and you can just jump in.
1: That is so and the, cool.
0: The power of parent advocates is so great because you can bring a live human child to your ledge obviously not now but when <laughs> yeah. when covid, when COVID <laughs> is less of a problem you can bring your child to testify about his hearing aids or his home nursing care or the reimbursement rate for his ventilator and right. you can teach your child that our system works
1: yeah that is so powerful i love that like mental image of raising these children in a setting where they know they can lobby for their own rights and that you will fight with them <laughs> as their parent. Yeah. I think that's so awesome. Well, I would love to wrap up with how does it feel to you when either you're a big part of a victory or even as a minor part of it, but how does that feel to see a change happen and see lives impacted?
0: It's a giant win. Um, It feels great, but fixing problems is a heck of a drug, and once you find a problem and fix it, you can't actually stop, and (laughs) it starts to take up more. (laughs) It's amazing, and then there's other problems. (laughs) So now when I talk to my legislators, either state level or federal level, yeah, I've got the ask that we're working on, but they know I've got a B-side. There's always (laughs) more things to
1: ask for. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. This was like so amazing. And I'm like so excited to dig in and I'm so excited about all the parents that might be inspired by you and by this practical advice of how to make real changes for the world and for our children. I appreciate you. For a few photos of Jenny and her family at work in their advocacy, check out the website, theawarelifepodcast.com. Join us next week for episode 26, all about trauma therapy. See you then.